Hey everyone, it's Hannah. I will be continuing with two more stories from Ed Gooding's book. Please check out our Patreon in the episode's show notes, and if anyone's listening, happy Halloween. Houston six years. One of the most baffling cases I worked occurred in 1962. The Houston media called it the torso murder. I hate to say it, but contrary to the movies and TV, we don't solve all of our cases, and this was one of them. Two men whose names I have forgotten stopped at a bridge on Highway 59 near Shepherd, Texas to go fishing. Before starting, they noticed two cardboard boxes sitting nearby at the water's edge and went to investigate. To put it mildly, the men were stunned when they discovered that the contents of the boxes contained a dismembered torso. The lower part of the torso was in one box and the upper part was in the other. Dirty, oily clothes had been stuffed around the body's parts in each box. The two men contacted San Jacinto County Sheriff's Department and they contacted me. What we found was grisly. Scattered over a large area near the water were the intestines. When we investigated the boxes, the arms of the torso had been removed at the shoulder, the legs at the hips, and the head had also been severed. The killer had also cut out the victim's heart. We never did find any of the missing body parts. I don't know if the murderer carried them with him, threw them away, or gave them to a dog. We never found anything. When we completed our crime scene investigation, the local justice of the peace ordered the body to be taken to Houston for an autopsy. The autopsy revealed the remains to be that of a woman about 45 years of age. She had given birth to at least one child, probably two. The pathologist estimated the woman to have been approximately 5 feet 8 inches tall and had weighed about 170 pounds. She had a scar running horizontally across her abdomen from an earlier appendix operation. It was estimated that she had been dead 7 to 10 days. Unfortunately, due to the absence of a head, fingers, and other normal identifying parts, we could not put a name with her. We checked the missing person file with the Houston Police Department and the Harris County Sheriff's Office. Again, nothing. We didn't have a clue as to the identity of this lady. We put as good a description as we could on flyers and posted them throughout the area. We immediately started getting calls. We found people that had been missing for years, many who didn't want to be found. We received a call from a woman who said her neighbor was moving and digging in his backyard. We drove to his house and found him with a box the size of an army footlocker. He was very cooperative. He said that his dog had died some time ago and he had buried him. He was moving out of the state and he couldn't bear the thought of leaving his dog behind. He had dug up the dog's remains so that he could take them with him. He opened the box and showed us the proof. All of this happened while I was rotating in and out of Galveston. For the next four years, we continued to run every lead we received. We had a meeting with the officers from five states that had reported similar cases. In fact, we found them scattered all over the country, but we were never able to solve our mystery. The woman's remains were buried in a pauper's grave in a San Jacinto County cemetery. Kerrville may be smaller and more laid back than Houston, but they still know how to kill one another there. In my seven years of service in Kerrville, I only had three murders. I regret to say that my batting average for them was not very good. 
The first murder case I had centered around a domestic argument between a man and his wife, with the woman ending up dead. I hate to say it, but this case was botched up from the start by just about everyone involved. The murder happened right after the Earl Warren Supreme Court had ruled on the Miranda case. After its ruling, you had to Mirandize anyone when you arrested them. You had to read the suspect a list of all the bad things that could happen to him if he talked to you. About all this accomplished was to scare the suspect half out of his wits before we could even start to question him. A woman had died by natural causes. At least that's how local justice of the peace or, who was also the county coroner, ruled in his inquiry. But the woman's daughter was having no part of that verdict. She said her mother and her stepfather argued endlessly, and she believed that he had murdered her mother. She kept after Judge Orr to have an autopsy performed, and finally her persistence paid off. The judge ordered the body exhumed and shipped to San Antonio for an autopsy. I was in the county attorney's office when I first learned that a possible murder had been committed. The district attorney, Robert Barton, told me that he had just received an autopsy report that left several things unanswered and that I might want to look into it. Judge Orr was a retired military adjutant general and had only worked military law cases. He had little experience with civilian matters and didn't feel completely comfortable as to the best direction to take. I could understand that. We're all in the same country, but civilian and military law proceedings are as different as daylight and dark. I read in the autopsy report that the victim had unexplained bruises on her throat and that her hyoid bone was broken. The report offered no opinion whether this was the cause of death or not. With such an unclear report, Judge Orr refused to reverse his earlier ruling, but I wasn't ready to let it go. I talked some more to the DA about the case. He carefully reviewed the complete file and advised me to proceed with a murder investigation. We would try to clear up the autopsy report later. When the victim's husband learned that the autopsy was going to be performed, he went to a local doctor. We learned later that he admitted to the doctor that he had killed his wife. He told him that this had been his second marriage and was a huge mistake from the first. He was much older than his wife, and she continuously made fun of his lack of sexual prowess. It was humiliating to him, and one night as they lay in bed, she started laughing at him. That was it. He claimed that something snapped, and in a rage, he strangled her to death with his bare hands. He asked the doctor to certify that he needed a psychiatric examination and to get him admitted to the Kerrville State Hospital. The doctor agreed that he indeed needed evaluation and had him admitted. The husband was from San Antonio, so that's where I headed to get all the background information I could find. As soon as I arrived, I contacted Zeno Zero Smith, the local ranger, and asked for his help. We contacted the suspect's first wife, and she said she had no doubt that her ex-husband was capable of killing. She said that he had nearly choked her to death on more than one occasion. After finishing in San Antonio, I returned to Kerrville and immediately contacted the district attorney. After listening to my report, D.A. Barton advised me that we needed to have the suspect see a state-appointed psychiatrist for further evaluation. He suggested I take him to San Antonio and get the psychiatrist that the Bear County Sheriff's Office used. I contacted the doctor in San Antonio and set up an appointment. When the suspect and I arrived at the psychiatrist's office, he was suddenly not available. I began to smell a mouse. We had an appointment and the doctor doesn't show up. It appeared I had gotten a hold of a suspect who had some powerful political connections. The receptionist directed me to the nearby state hospital. After getting the suspect admitted, I was told it would take about a month to reach any conclusions, which they would forward to me. Instead of keeping him in San Antonio, however, they loaded him up and took him back to the state hospital in Kerrville. 
While in the hospital, he confessed to his two doctors that he had killed his former wife. Since the doctors were state employees working for the state and not the suspect, no doctor-client relationship existed. Whatever he told the doctors, they could testify to. Several local businessmen, public officials, and I loved bluegrass music, and we would meet at various homes and jam about once a week. We were at the district attorney's house one night, about a week after returning from San Antonio, when we received a call from the state hospital. Our suspect wanted to talk to us. The DA and I dropped everything and took off. We were ushered into a visitation room, and there sat the suspect with his first wife. Looking at me, she said he wanted to tell me something. Before we allowed him to say a word, we issued him his Miranda warning. He said he understood his rights, but he wanted to talk anyway. He laid it all out. His wife had been drinking heavily, and they were doing what they usually did, arguing, when she physically attacked him. He fought back, and the next thing he knew, he had choked her down. He didn't mean to kill her. It just happened. We got all this down on paper, and the suspect signed it. Since he was under the care of a doctor, we didn't take him into custody, but left him at the hospital. We also got a statement from the doctor in charge of the hospital that the suspect had come in under his own free will, was not in custody, and could have walked away at any time he wanted to. We filed murder charges, and the case was set for trial. The suspect's lawyer requested a preliminary hearing before the trial date, and it was granted. The purpose of a preliminary hearing is to determine if there is enough evidence to present the case to a grand jury. With the suspect's written confession, the hearing should have been just as a formality. We went through his statement admitting the murder and also his statement to the doctors. After nearly a full day in court, the judge called a recess. When the court resumed, the roof fell in. The judge ruled that even though the suspect had made the request to talk to us that night and had agreed to his Miranda rights, since he was in the state hospital, he was actually in our custody and had been given a statutory warning by a magistrate. Since his mental capacity was in question, an attorney should have been present when he made his statements. Continuing along the same line, the judge overruled the doctor's testimony, therefore also making the suspect's statements to him inadmissible. Our case was deader than his murdered wife. District Attorney Robert Barton was aghast. I was stunned, and the suspect was free. Barton and I must have talked this case over a dozen times in the ensuing years, and we never could figure out why the judge had ruled the way he did. The district attorney had presented precedents from similar cases where a man had been in voluntary custody and statements had been taken and admitted as evidence. But the judge is the judge, and his ruling is final in all matters of law. The state cannot appeal to a higher court in Texas. Only the defendant can appeal if he is found guilty. I have often wondered if this guy was this smart and hoodwinked us, or if he was just plain old dumb lucky.